0: Welcome into Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf here, going solo today to break down the Knicks one twelve to ninety nine Lost to the Atlanta Hawks. The Knicks led by twenty three points in this one, wind up losing by thirteen. So you know what that means. It's time for me to complain about Tom Thibodeau again. Next on Locked On Knicks. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes right now. Starks. Without a five. Ewing from the red. Yes! Hucks left. He now fires it. three. And he's good! And he's fouled! And, and he's out! Anthony for three. Five. That one goes down! Back up. Off the glass. It's good! gone. Byron! Becomes infectious. Out. Welcome in to Locked On Nicks. Today's episode is brought to you by Prize First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code Locked On. That's prizepicks.com, promo code Locked On. I am Alex Wolf. I'm editor in chief of Nick like the Strickland, which you can find at the strict.land. And I want to thank you guys for making Locked On Nick your first listen today and every day, whether you're checking us out on your favorite podcast platform, or taking in the sights and sounds on YouTube. We appreciate you guys making us a part of your daily routine. And as I said in the intro, the Knicks lose this game 112-99. to They got out to a 23-point lead on the Atlanta Hawks at home in the first half. Things looked good. The starters were okay. The bench unit was humming. Things were looking awesome. And then the Hawks go on a little mini run to end the half, but it's okay. The Knicks are still out in front by like, forget what the exact number was because it didn't end up mattering, but about double digits, like 10 points, something like that. It's okay. They can figure it out. You know, they'll right the ship in the second half. And then what happens? But a third quarter of doom, the Knicks see that lead evaporate. The Hawks, I think, went on a 14-0 run before the Knicks even got a point in edgewise in the second half. And the Knicks end up losing by 13 in the final score. This comes, I should note, with Trey Young out for about half of this game. And DeJounte Murray, basically just being a one-man wrecking crew, uh, he wound up putting up, I think, 30-something points on the Knicks. I don't even have his stat line in front of me, mostly, because it's not super important, if I'm being honest. He crushed them. That's all that really matters. Uh, On both ends, he was a terror The Hawks, the big thing was they switched to zone in the second half. And as Tibbs has proved in the past, he's not very good at adjusting. And that was kind of one of the main things that that really crushed the Knicks. Like They had no new wrinkles to add after timeouts. They uh, just were completely vexed by this zone and could not figure out how to attack it. And it's like, stop me. If you've heard this story before, you know, sometimes it just feels like Gavin and I have talked early on in the season about how it seemed like Tibbs was maybe taking a little baby step forward, but it's like, he takes a baby step forward and then a lot of times takes a big step back. And that's what this game felt like. This felt like a huge step back. Any positive progress that had been made early on in this year so far, just kind of flew out the window in that second half. Like the sad part too, is that the Knicks won the first quarter pretty handily. They won the fourth quarter by a few points. They only were outscored by three in the second quarter. Like things were looking pretty good, but then they lost the third quarter, 32 to 10. I mean, that's just pitiful. Like there's no excuse in the NBA for getting that worked in a quarter other than if your team is just coming in completely unprepared. And this was just kind of like, the latest edition of Nate McMillan, like coaching circles around Tibbs, you know, the Knicks just, it's going to start becoming the playbook again. Like I can almost guarantee it after this game that we're going to start seeing zone thrown at the Knicks a lot more because Nate McMillan remembered, oh yeah, the Knicks can't play against the zone. You know, they're just completely flummoxed as to how to, how to use their offense when you're not playing defense like they play defense you know because the Knicks are just so used to I don't know if that's all they practice And practice is like okay we're just going to play against teams that basically play drop like we do uh, that's not the case other teams in the NBA play different defenses sometimes you're going to play switch heavy teams sometimes you're going to play a you know a, a drop team like the Knicks sometimes you're going to run into a team that's going to say hey we're down by double digits let's try zone and see if this works and That's because the Hawks practice that and the Knicks clearly don't practice to play against that. The Knicks definitely don't practice to ever play any defense other than drop. And that's just kind of part of the problem with Tibbs is that he's so married to these philosophies that he has that it seems like he can't even bring himself to think that other teams might throw something different at the Knicks. And they're just if it deviates from what he watched on the film 700 times or however many times that, you know, he says he watches film then there, he has zero capacity for making in-game adjustments to these things. And the best NBA coaches make in-game adjustments. Like Tibbs, I think, has done a good job of developing a pretty decent defensive scheme and has done a good job of overall setting the Knicks up for success on defense. But he's just done a terrible job of ever adjusting to anything since he's been coach of the Knicks. And that includes after timeout plays. That includes... You know, if teams throw throw new wrinkles in on defense. If teams start throwing different looks at them on offense, the Knicks seem to have a really hard time of adjusting. We see this all the time. With once teams decide, okay, they're playing drop all the time. Let's just start spamming pick and pop. That happened the other day against the Cavs. It happened in the preseason with uh, Andrew Nemhard and and Goga on the the Pacers, guys who are like fringe NBA rotation players. Like it's so easy sometimes to crack the code of Tibbs. And he has no other solutions for it. Like he has no way of, of readjusting what he does. He has no small lineup in his back pocket. He has no, you know, playing switch in his back pocket. There's just nothing there for him to do to change things. So it it's just, it's super frustrating. It makes it really unenjoyable to watch this team sometimes where you just know that if some other team is going to throw something different at the Knicks, that they have no answer because they're not prepared. And for a coach that preaches preparedness as much as Tibbs does, that's kind of unacceptable. And I I do think that they come prepared for whatever the default setting is for any given team, but they have no game plan for if the default setting is breached at all. Now, speaking of default settings, I also want to talk about two positional, uh, I don't know if I necessarily want to call them battles, But two positional conundrums on the Knicks right now. That's the shooting guard spot and the power forward and center spot in just a second. But first, I just got to let you guys know about Prize Picks. Prize Picks is daily fantasy like you've never played it before. It is a really fun game. It's literally just you versus the computer. For example, On any given night, you could take Luka Doncic to score more than 26 and a half points, LeBron James to have more than seven and a half rebounds, Kevin Durant to have less than six and a half assists, and Steph Curry to have more than three and a half three-pointers made, or you can even do mixed sport entries, so you could do like uh, Saquon Barkley over 85 rushing yards or whatever they set the line at. It's all just you versus lines, and none of the the... Stuff that comes with daily fantasy on some of those other sites, where you have to pick lineups, and then there's always people that have an algorithm and a spreadsheet that are t- is you know things they're paying for tools to tell them how to bet and and you know how to pick their lineups, and then subsequently placing like eight thousand entries to stack the pool and make it so your one little twenty dollar entry has no chance of winning, especially when you don't have all the tools they do. No. None of that. You're not going head-to-head against other people. It's literally just you versus numbers with prize picks. You pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on any entry. They also offer projections on any sport that you watch. Ready for the long list? NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL, PGA, college football, men's college basketball, women's college basketball, soccer, WNBA, eSports, NASCAR, tennis, MMA, boxing, disc golf, Euro basketball, cricket, and somehow even more sports than that. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It really is that easy, and they offer safe and fast withdrawals. And they're currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. So you could download the PrizePix app or go to PrizePix.com to sign up today and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code LOCKED ON. If you deposit $100, PrizePix will give you $100. If you deposit $50, PrizePix will give you $50. Don't forget to enter promo code LOCKEDON On sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. All right, and I'm back talking Knicks here. And as I said, I want to talk about some of these position battles. And the first one I want to talk about is Quentin Grimes or Emmanuel Quickly versus Evan Fournier in the starting shooting guard spot. So we saw the return of Quentin Grimes finally in this game. However, it was for just like a couple minutes of garbage time at the very end of the game, after the Knicks have been getting torched all game by DeJounte Murray. I'm glad that I waited a little bit today to record this because there's a, a quote from practice from Zach Brazilier of the, the uh, New York Post. And he said, Quentin Grimes practiced fully today and says he has been pain-free for over a week. Tom Thibodeau says he will still be, quote, situational tomorrow. So if Grimes is pain-free, if he's practicing well, why was he not playing more? And he just gets the couple minutes of garbage time. I think, rusty or not, the team was bleeding points out there in the second half thanks to two things. One, not being able to bust the zone, which I alluded to before. And two, nobody being able to check DeJounte Murray on the other end, who was just going absolutely insane. Again, without Trey Young for like almost half this game and and Trey overall just did not have a great game, but DeJounte just went completely bonkers. So Grimes could have potentially solved both those problems in one fell swoop if he's doing well. And, And this is a guy that Tibbs allegedly loves. So why, you know, is Tibbs stubbornly sticking to his rotation? That's been the rotation for the first number of games when Grimes is apparently healthy is beyond me. You know, Grimes should always have been part of this equation if he's healthy and he seemed to get around. Okay. In those minutes that he had, he said he's pain free now. So I don't know. There's, there's like twofold. uh, There's a twofold thing to this with Grimes for me, where I'm a little worried about his health because he's been held out for this long with like plantar fasciitis or whatever they're saying it is, which isn't normally something that afflicts someone of his age, but then, You know, you're also looking at like, why is he not getting minutes then if he's healthy? So like, is he, is he still unhealthy, but he looks fine. So why isn't he getting minutes then? That's worrisome to me because I would think that the second that he's healthy, you want to get him out there, especially if your team's getting worked. Like, what do you have to lose? Why did he not play like the whole fourth quarter or like the better part of it? At least, you know, I I don't understand what the rationale was with not putting him in there for more because he's not going to work the rust off in practice. Like he's going to have to get game action at some point. Your team has given up a huge lead. Why not try something different before, you know, two minutes left in the game or however much time he managed to actually get. And I don't know. So that's one guy that could solve the problems. The other guy is right on the roster. And granted he did play a decent amount more minutes than Fournier in this game. And that's a manual quickly, but, The minutes distribution was so bizarre that it sort of just was in such a way that Fournier was out there right at the times to lose the Knicks the game like in the early stages of that third quarter and was not out there like coming off the bench or whatever and quickly came in and then had to play like 18 straight minutes to close the game which is not an ideal way to ever use a player because you're not going to get their best if you're not staggering them properly and giving them adequate rest in between sessions and whatever. So uh, here's some stats that uh, my buddy Jeff Rasmussen at the Strickland pulled today for the recap. And and this is just insane stuff. So the Knicks net rating when Emmanuel quickly plays is a plus 8.7 and a minus 6.9 when he sits net rating when Fournier plays is a minus 9.2 and plus 11 when he sits. The Knicks starting lineup's net rating is a minus 9.2. The Knicks net rating when quickly replaces Fournier with the rest of the starters, which has actually gotten an okay look this year, although it's becoming more platooned again lately, is a plus 15.4. The Knicks net rating when Fournier and RJ Barrett are on the court together is a minus 8.7. And the Knicks net rating went quickly and R.J. Barrett on the court together is a plus 25.9. So you've got your your most important young piece in R.J. Barrett, who you just extended, who's kind of struggling this year, clearly plays better with quickly on the floor. And honestly, has played really great with the bench unit in general. You have, uh, you know, you're guying quickly who is another key young piece that you want to get as many minutes as possible in theory this year, because you need to figure out if you want to extend him next year. Just likewise with Obi Toppin, who I'll talk about in a minute, but the decisions are coming faster than you think on Quickly and Toppin. Like, they're going to have to make the same decision they made with R.J. Barrett this past summer with Quickly and Toppin this year, and yet are still kind of jerking their minutes around, not keeping things consistent for them and not giving them a, a better role. So like, why is Quickly not in the starting lineup, it would seem to make like such a huge difference to throw him in there, get the defensive benefits that come with that at the point of attack, because things can't get too much worse than Brunson and Fournier right now. And like, I'm not saying that Jalen Brunson is an awesome defender either. Like, but that's the problem is Brunson is offering a lot more on offense than Fournier is offering right now. And Fournier is kind of struggling with his shot, but also is struggling on defense. So if both those things are going to be true, you need to take him out because you can't have him struggling on both sides of the ball, especially because his defense is never going to pick up his offense the way that his offense can pick up his defense when it's working. And I guess the other thing with the the Fournier starting thing at this point is that some might argue he needs to play because of how much he's paid, right? He's making like roughly $18 million a year, whatever the case may be a little under 20 million is the, the total number. And I don't really buy that either. Like, I think that there's still just a fundamental misunderstanding among people as far as like what players get paid now and what good players get paid. I mean, Fournier plays a pretty premium position, which is why he gets paid more than say a Mitchell Robinson who plays center, which is a generally a lower paid position in today's NBA now. But like, uh, Fournier plays on the wing and gets 18 million a year. If he was a legit starting quality wing or like shooting guard, he would probably be making north of 25 million right now. Like that's just the going rate for like that is now like the new threshold of you need to play this guy and start him is like 25 million a year. And when you're in the range, like what Fournier's in, like 17, 18 million, I don't think that the financial obligation is so severe that you have to say, this guy has to be starting, especially like even if there's a a better option available, the optics would just be too bad if you sit this guy. I, I don't really think that should be the case ever, but I can understand it from the perspective of like if the Knicks would try to at this point sit like Jalen Brunson or something like no, Brunson's making what a starter should be making. So Brunson should be starting and playing well. If he sits, that's like a, a I means something has gone fundamentally wrong at this point with the Knicks. If Fournier sits, I think you can make a reasonable case that, like, he's a fairly paid, like, microwave score off the bench. And I think that that should be his role at this point because that's where you put guys that have defensive liabilities that can light it up on offense for you. For example, a former Nick plays for the Mavericks now. Tim Hardaway Jr. makes basically exactly what Fournier makes. It might almost be to the dollar that they make uh, on their contracts. Like, they're so similar in how much they make. Hardaway hasn't started a single game this year. He's scoring like 13 points off the bench. And in general, he's been very good for the Mavericks since he went there. And he's mostly been playing that role where he plays, you know, 25 to 30 minutes a game, depending on the the game script or whatever. But like the coach isn't afraid to take him out if he's not doing well on defense and or if he's just not doing well on offense. You know, his role can be fluid. He's not like guaranteed a certain number of minutes. With Fournier, it's starting to almost feel like, like the Alfred Payton situation or the Kemba Walker situation or the Alec Burke situation, where it feels like they're promised something as far as a starting role. And that's dictating the fact that he's still starting more so than his play because the numbers, if Tibbs is as into the numbers, as he says, like then he should be able to read these numbers and say, okay, yeah, this is, you know, this is not working. Like, and the eye test backs it up. Like Fournier getting cooked all the time. Can't afford Sit Brunson because he's a very key part of what we're doing on offense right now. So the logical move is Sit Fournier, get a better defensive replacement in there, and maybe even someone that is shooting a little more consistently right now, or at least producing offense for himself and the team more consistently, which would be quickly right now. Or maybe it could be Grimes in like a week or t- tomorrow, like literally against the Sixers. Like I don't, I don't understand what the reluctancy is to make a move other than Tibbs being stubborn. And that's sort of just always the theme with him is he's very stubborn. He doesn't like to make changes and he doesn't like to, to deviate at all from what his plan is. So uh, speaking of that, there's another topic I got to get into. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, uh, which is Obi Toppin and Julius Randall and how they should be playing together and how uh, that's a really good idea. And it would allow them to play like, two guys that have the potential to be their best player on any given night together for a little bit and at least make sure that both of them get like, I don't know, 20 minutes a game for Obi, something like that. So I want to get into that in just a second here. All right, so I'm back for the final segment. And as I teased, OB and Randall again, the, the, the false competition that has been created by Tibbs via the fact that he is not willing to just play these two guys together at all for even a few minutes a game, which would seem like a really easy thing to do. So Obi in this game against the Hawks played 18 and a half minutes. He had 12 points, but he was absolutely cooking in the first half. He scored 10 points in like seven and a half minutes, but seven and a half was all he got. And he did manage to get a few more minutes in the second half, but didn't really get them at an opportune time and it was a little colder in the second half. And it was mostly because of that scheme that the the Hawks threw out there of playing zone and the Knicks not running as much. The Knicks falling into their bad habits of playing in the half court more and not really looking to get out and run as much, which is where OB obviously thrives, which brings me to Julius Randle who played 29 and a half minutes, had 14.6 boards. He also went cold in the second half and was not shooting well, was not playing as well due to the style of play that the Knicks were playing so uh, here's here's the facts here's what's happening in this game the Hawks are destroying you with a zone they're pretty much crushing you on the boards all game when Mitch isn't in the game like Hartenstein had a terrible game on the boards in this one to my eye at least like technique wise and the fact that Anyeko Kongwu was just like owning him on the glass like the entire second half especially it just was not good. So, why would you not in this game try out Randall and Obi for like, even give it a trial run, throw them out there for like a minute or two and see how they do? Because if you can bust up that zone coverage by running the floor, like you can't set up in a zone if you're just getting run on. So, at least then the Knicks can get some points that way while they try to work out, like, okay, how do we beat this zone now? But then if you start playing, you know, a little bit more of a, a style that's conducive to beating a zone, like working around the perimeter, trying to find the holes in that zone rather than letting guys rotate to you freely the way that they were when the Knicks were setting up in their in their half-court offense, then, you know, you can you could potentially add a wrinkle that, that throws them off their game a little instead of you just being thrown off yours. It would have been a perfect time to try it, but Tibbs refuses to. And I think this all comes back to bring this, like, full circle again to what I was talking about in the first segment, which is, Tibbs doesn't game plan for irregularities he only game plans for his perfect idea of what a game should look like and that's the biggest problem when you watch games like this is you're like yeah but every other team in the league has a different look they can throw at you for a minute like you look at the most successful teams I'll use the most successful team as the example here but like the the Warriors were throwing like Andrew Wiggins out there as like the power forward center ostensibly if you look at what the lineups were last year at at certain points and it would work because suddenly you challenge this guy who's more of a wing to like okay now go out there and get more rebounds and and make this work like and he does it and there were certain times in this game where Emmanuel quickly was like the best rebounder on the floor for the Knicks so if Emmanuel quickly is gathering a lot of your rebounds anyway, it's sixteen. By the way, it's like an obscene number for him. But if he's gathering a lot of your rebounds anyway and, and finding the ways to gather those, why not throw Obi and Randall out there? And you're clearly not losing much with Hartenstein anyway because he's not really getting that many rebounds. So like, I don't know. I, I just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. I even pull a couple stats here that I think are kind of interesting and paint like a picture of just how how much how worthy of a risk this is of taking. So we know obviously Mitch is an absolute beast on the offensive glass. He's pretty darn good on the defensive glass too. We've talked about his box outs before and stuff like that. So Mitch comes in at 50% on contested defensive rebounds, which is right around the tops with, with the rest of the, uh, you know, like starting caliber centers out there in the NBA, the guys getting higher minutes at the center position, uh, he, he gets 50% of the but a contested rebound is one where you're like actively fighting with someone else for it. He gets 50% and that's on defensive rebounds. I should say not even just his offensive numbers and saying it's like 60 something percent or maybe even more than that. I forget, but that's just on defensive boards. He gets 50% of the, of the, of the contested ones where he's got to work for it. Right. Hartenstein gets 30 per 36% of those. So 14% dip. And how often Hartenstein gets a contested defensive rebound. Then you look at Obi and Toppin or Obi and Randall, Obi Toppin, Julius Randall, and they're at 22% on contested defensive rebounds. So it's a 14% drop each time, right? So 14% from Mitch to Hartenstein, 14% from Hartenstein to Obi and Randall. But Hartenstein is, you know, he had one nice moment in this game with a really nice outlet pass to to Obi, but that's like his utility in transition. Meanwhile, we've seen Obi and Randall are both like getting out and going on, you know, in transition this year. And they're getting out and, and trying to start something on offense. If you can practice those looks and set up a scenario where you say, look, if you guys are playing together, you're going to have to box out a little more like that's one of the only things I did look up the box out numbers like Hartenstein is way up there in box outs uh this year is he's right up there with Mitch. He, he and Mitch are like in the top like 10 in the league in that. So Hartenstein, you're going to have to replace those box outs so that those rebounding opportunities become available to an Emmanuel quickly to your fellow guy, you know, whether you're if you're Randall and you're boxing out, you're hoping Obi can grab it and go. If you're Obi and you're boxing out, you're hoping Randall can grab it and go or vice versa. And then you can subsequently get going in transition as well. But like it, you're going to have to train them to box out more and be prepared for that. But as long as you can do that and, you know, if they continue with their same contested rebound percentage, contested defensive rebound percentage, and can still like manage to get more boards. And if they started actively boxing out more, Understanding the situation, that that number would go up, I think. Then you've got this situation where they can start a potent transition offense and have you know a squad out there that's a little more versatile on the offensive end, too. Even in half court sets, where you know I think that Randall and Obi can can cut better than say a Hartenstein would, and in a zone, Hartenstein's style is not as valuable, right? Where yes he can stretch the floor a bit with the three point shooting which like we saw him make a three in this game but a lot of what he does is passing out of out of the high post and stuff like that and if you're going to have him doing that a zone is not a great look to try that against because you're always going to have a guy camped in the middle there that whose job it is to kind of like dart around and and meet anybody that comes into the post so you got to play a more perimeter style game and start burning them with three pointers and stuff i think that you're better equipped to do that if you have Obi and Randall out there who also are better at like pick and roll and especially Obi is is better at getting up there setting a screen and getting inside which could then potentially, you know, draw that middle defender out a little bit to one direction or another. It it just it makes too much sense to try them. I and I, I don't understand why Tibbs doesn't uh but These are the things, you know, these are why I still going into the season was lukewarm on Tibbs. And even with some of the improvements that we saw in the first few games, I still was like, yeah, but we got to see how he does when adversity hits and, you know, see if the the same thing with Randall, I think Randall's largely been doing okay. I don't think this is his best game. uh, So, but in general, Randall, I think has done a better job of exercising the demons of last year. Than Tibbs has so far this year and Tibbs is very rapidly slipping into the same tendencies where there's something that's clearly not working and he is just completely uh, unwilling to try to solve it. So I don't know. That's it though. I think that's all I got to talk about. Like the, the, I can't believe I even went this long talking about this game because it was just, it was a terrible watch. It was not fun. I did not have a great time watching this one, and, and I'm sure that none of you did either. So, uh, anyway, uh, we'll be <laughs> we'll be back to talk about the next game against Philly. Perhaps we'll have another podcast in the middle there somewhere. But until next time, thank you all for listening, and I'll talk to you guys all soon. Peace out.